Hey, this is Greg Sanders. Thanks for listening today. It's our hope that this message will help you connect to God, grow in His Word, and serve the kingdom in a greater capacity. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. How many of you remember a television show? It came out in the 90s. It was on, it was on television for like a decade. It's still on tele- television called Home Improvement. Anybody? Do you guys, are, how many of you teenagers are familiar with Home Improvement? Okay, at least 70% of you. Okay, all right. I'm already getting Tim the Toolman grunts. Uh, if you've never watched Home Improvement, I would almost encourage you to go home and watch it. It will encourage you. It'll at least make you smile. Uh, there is a, a guy, his name is Tim. He's the main character of the show. He always wants to improve not just his physical home, but his, uh, you know, his family home. And every time he tries, he fails. He usually ends up blowing up something, literally. Then he'll go in the backyard, he'll look over the fence to his neighbor, whose face you never gets to see. He looks over, he asks his neighbor for help, he goes back, he doesn't really, really ever understand his neighbor, but he goes back in, somehow he figures it out, and his life gets a little bit better, his home improves a little bit. Here's some big key I want you to get out of this Sunday and the next two Sundays is this. All of us are living in a home that is either improving or decaying. One of the, one of the, if you want to see some personal wealth decrease, go buy you a home, a perfectly good home, in any neighborhood, the best neighborhood in town, doesn't matter. Go buy you a perfectly good home and abandon it. No one has to attack it. No one has to break into it. No one has to, to try to sabotage it. It just existing without care will deteriorate. Right? People will tell you the worst thing you can do is have a house that sits there vacant. It's either being tended to and appreciating, improving, or it's decaying. Can I tell you what is true about a physical house is true about our spiritual houses, it's true about our families. And so today, I want to talk to you about how to guard and how to welcome home improvement to our families. Next week, I want to challenge you back. Next week, part two of this, I want to talk about how to restore uh, a son or a daughter or a friend, someone who you know has, has ventured out into a life away from God, how God can use you as a family member to bring them back to the Lord, how you can love them back to Jesus. That's next week. And then the third week, which is the week before Thanksgiving, we're talking about how to, how to uh, espouse a, a grateful home. And, but the reason I'm talking about this this morning is John 10. Most of you could quote that scripture with me. Uh, the word says, Jesus speaking, by the way, says these phrase, that the enemy comes only to what? Kill, steal, and destroy. And I can promise you the enemy is out to kill, steal, and destroy your family. Whether you are a household of one or a household of of 21, it doesn't matter. He's out to kill, steal, and destroy the family God has for you. And he will attack you as a single person. He will try to attack you and try to get you uh, damaged before you even... Uh, maybe have uh, your own family, your own wife, your own husband, or he may try to damage the family you have with your, with your, uh, with your parents or your siblings. Megan has uh, mentioned to me over and over again that she's convinced that one of, the, one of the reasons the enemy attacks family units so strong is that if you're single and the enemy attacks you, guess what he gets? 
you, right? But if you're a mom, or if you're a dad, or if you're a husband, or if you're a wife, if the enemy can attack one part of that unit, he doesn't just damage the person, he damages the whole family. He gets more for his buck if he can destroy a family. And so this morning, I am. this is equally important for those who have what we would call complete family units, or whether you're single, maybe you're a single mom, single dad, all of this is relative because just because you find yourself happily married or uh, successfully single, however you describe your current situation, the enemy is not going to stop attacking you just because of the situation you're in today. He is still out to kill and destroy what you have or what you have left. So this is for all of us today. We all have to realize that our relationships are in constant state of improvement or a constant state of decay. And if you've ever wondered, does God even care about families? Does God even care about the state of my family, the state of my relationships? If you've ever wondered, I mean, where does God, where does God sit down and say, okay, here's the blueprint for how you're supposed to live as a family? You might be you could sit down and you could argue that there's nowhere in the Bible where God tells you how to run a family. Or you could argue from Genesis to Revelation that all of Scripture is used and can be used and should be used to, to, to teach you how to lead your family, how to lead your life. And one Scripture I want to jump off with today is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and verse number 8. It says, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's a pretty, challenge, pretty challenging scripture, just one verse long, but let's pray over that this morning. God, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you for what you're doing in our families. We thank you for what you're doing in our church family. God, I pray that this morning you would help me to speak what you've put in our hearts to speak today. But more than that, you'd also open our ears, our hearts, and our minds to hear what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us. There may be those in the room today that have just, they've come out of obligation, they've come out of convenience, but you want this to be a world-changing day for them. Others of us have come with ears wide open, but God, help us not be distracted. Help us hear what the Holy Spirit wants to say. Help me to preach what He wants to preach. and We'll all rejoice together. At the conclusion of this message, I to respond to you. And everybody in the room said, Amen. Those last four words, worse than an unbeliever. Does that hit anyone right between the teeth? Worse than an unbeliever. Now, if you have friends outside of church who are not Christ followers, it is not an insult to say, well, they're unbelievers. I actually like to refer to those as, as not unbelievers. I like to re- refer to those people as pre-believers. They just haven't accepted Jesus yet. They're just not following Jesus yet. It's not that they're even unbelievers. They're just pre-believers. They haven't, they haven't heard or had the opportunity to choose to follow Jesus yet. But there is, there is a sense of insult that Paul is saying when he says this verse. He says they are worse than an unbeliever. In other words, it would have been better if they hadn't believed at all. If they are believing in Jesus, they claim to have faith in Him, but yet they're treating their family like they 
Christ hasn't existed. Now, most of this, there's a lot of this that is heavily contextualized through financial responsibility. Um, and I could skew off course real easily and talk about, is it really a sin for someone not to financially provide for your family? Well, there's your answer. But I'll tell you, it's more than just financially providing. It is also about providing the spiritual example for your family. It's about uh, providing spiritual leadership for your family. It's about practicing spiritual responsibility and leading your family in all ways. And the Word says if we are not leading our family as moms and dads, single people, even as teenagers, I've seen a lot of teenagers who have led their families to the Lord by deciding, hey, if mom and dad won't be the spiritual leader, I'll do what I can from where I am to lead people to Jesus. All I'm saying is that if we have to understand there is a responsibility upon our life to lead people in spiritual matters. And no matter if you've been following the Lord for a year or 70 years, whether you've been in a family for one year or 70 years, here's what I know. All of us have room for home improvement. I've noticed something. I'll, I'll, I'll get preaching in a minute. But I've noticed something in my last 20-something years of ministry that if I will have a marriage seminar... Guess who comes to those marriage seminars? Married people. What kind of married people? Those that have their marriages together. If we were to have a world-class marriage seminar tomorrow, I promise the people that would show up for that marriage seminar, Brother Joey, are the people whose marriages are on point, that got it together. The room will be full of great marriages. And those who are struggling with their marriages the most, you know where they'll be found? At Taco Bell. <laughs> Somewhere else. Why does that happen? Why is it if you have a financial seminar? The people that show up most quickly are those who have their financial life together. It's because people who have healthy relationships have learned... It doesn't just happen. I am constantly improving or I am constantly decaying. And most people who have decaying relationships don't understand that they have de decaying relationships until, you know, it's like when you have a decaying tooth. You may not know it's decayed until it hurts or it falls out when you're trying to eat dinner. It just, when stuff falls apart, all of a sudden you wonder, how did that happen? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? So I'm going to start. So we can experience, we've got how the question is, how can we experience home improvement? Take the, take the physical home you live in. One of the ways you experience home improvement on that physical, that brick and mortar, wood frame building, whatever it is you live in, one of the ways you can in, improve the environment in that home is not to expand it, not to add an extra bedroom or whatever. Sometimes the best way you can improve that home is actually just by guarding what you have a little bit better, like putting in some new windows or adding some insulation. You add things to kind of sure up that what is on the inside stays separate than what's on the outside. How do you, know, how you understand that the environment on the inside of your house is dependent on the environment on the outside of your house? Then you're, you're going to be hot in the summertime and cold in the wintertime, right? Your life is going to be dependent on what is out there. Several years ago, there was an article 
that asked the question, what is the greatest invention of all time? And there was all these things that people speculated about. And the winner of the article, according to the article, the winner of the greatest invention ever was air conditioning. <laughs> and they said, here's why they said it was the winner. Because for the first time ever, people had control of their environment. Can I tell you, spiritually speaking, you have control of the environment of your home. No, Pastor, I can't control it. Then who on earth have you given control to? I would figure that out this morning. So, so today, this is about guarding the environment of our homes. How can we experience home improvement? If you're ready to hear the answers, say, I'm with you. Okay, all right, number one, we have to embrace accountability. If we want healing in our hearts, improvement in our homes, listen to what James says. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. In other words, before healing can take place, if I want home improvement in my life, which I do, by the way, I may give an example or two how I have needed home improvement. I can just promise you this. I'm only going to share with you the, the easy stuff. Is that okay? For every easy answer I give you, I promise you there have been deeper things where Megan and I have also struggled and prayed and said, God, we need some improvement in our home, in this area of our life. And the first way improvement comes is when we decide we are going to embrace accountability, which means we're going to confess our sins to one another, we're going to pray for one another, we're going to be honest to each other, and the Word says when you're honest with people and you're honest with God, the third thing that happens is that is this, healing comes. But you can't have healing until you first have confession and repentance. It's impossible for us to be powerful and effective while our sins are hidden. Have you ever, have you ever parked a car in your yard for like a month or two? Or maybe you saw a, yard, a car parked in someone else's yard for a month or two? What happens to the grass underneath that parked car? It dies and it becomes a bare spot, right? Why? Because nothing can be fruitful and covered at the same time, right? If before fruitfulness can come, before barrenness can be removed, there has to be some uncovering. And James says if you want healing in your life, if you want fruitfulness back in your spirit life, then you've got to learn that, that spiritual healing doesn't come by covering. It comes by revealing to God and revealing to those that you're in relationship with. But that is totally unnatural. Right? The first sin we find in the Bible Adam and Eve, they sinned, and what did they do? They immediately covered it up and they hid. Our instinct when we sin is to cover it up and to hide. But Proverbs chapter two or Proverbs 28 says that he who conceals his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses his sin and, what's that next word? Renounce. You know what that word renounce means? I'm done with it. I'm not going backwards. 
I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to go there again. I'm not going to hang out there again. I'm not going to think that way again. I'm done with it. I'm renouncing it. Proverbs says, whoever conceals his sin will not prosper. Whoever conceals his sin will be like the ground underneath that parked car that's been there for six months. It's going to remain barren and empty and dead. But whoever will move the car and say, God, I'm done hiding this, then the word says that the Lord will come in and he will give healing where there's been barrenness. The moment Adam and Eve said, Lord, here we are, God created a sacrifice for them so that was covered in a way that really didn't hide anything. It would be covered with something better. That was his righteousness and his covering. And it's real easy to, to share this today. And many of us are hearing this, well, yeah, I understand if I cover my sins, I won't, I won't prosper. But I want to I get a little bit more specific today. I want, to, I want to especially challenge families, husbands and wives, kids and, kids and parents. I'm convinced one of the ways the enemy destroys our families, the way he sneaks in and changes the environments of our household, the way he turns home improvement into home decay, is that we begin to cover our sins with little words, little innocent sentences that we call secrets. How many of you ever kept a secret? How many of you just confess, I am terrible at, at keeping secrets? Don't tell me anything, all right? <laughs> Don't tell me, all right? <laughs> Can I tell you, in some ways, being a horrible secret keeper could be a good thing. Because every secret we keep from our family is an opportunity for deceit and decay. And the enemy will tell you, well, it's no big deal. You know what that is the enemy saying? That's the enemy saying, do not be accountable to your spouse. Do not be accountable to your children. Don't be accountable to, 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 to those that you're in relationship with. We have to understand that accountability, keeping secrets is the same as telling lies. I didn't figure you'd shout about that one. You know, for a long time, accountability, I know I've, I've shared this before, a lot of times, accountability sounded like this. Hey, Seth, would you, Seth, I, I've, I've got this problem. I've been drinking 18 Diet Cokes a day, and I don't think that's good for me. That's not true anymore, by the way. I've changed my life a little bit. Um, but would you, would you be my accountability partner? Thank you. I, I need you to call me, and, and when you see me drinking a Diet Coke, I need you to ask me, Pastor, how many, how many of those have you had today? And I'm going to try my best not to lie to you <laughs> and, and give you the right answer. And for years, that's how we defined accountability. There's books that describe accountability that way. Get your money back on the book. You know what? Because what I've just done is I've taken my friend and I've turned him into my integrity. What's my word I'm looking for? In my integrity. Say that, say that again. What he said, what she said. That's what, I just turned him into that. And now he's the investigator and I'm the defense attorney trying to defend myself. Here's how accountability works. It's on the screen for you. It's providing necessary information before it's required. In other words, if Seth has to ask me, hey, Pastor, how many diet coach you had today? I'm already dead. I've already blown it. 
That's what accountability is. You can have 17 accountability partners. Hey, I want you to ask me. And what you're doing and when, you, when you say that is you're putting the pressure of your spiritual life on them instead of on you. Accountability provides the needed information before it's required. I got a friend of mine, I've probably told you this story before, but it, it, it depicts accountability done correctly so well. I got a, a dear friend of mine, brother of mine, who, who wrestled with drug addiction for years and, and, and to some extent functioned uh, successfully in some ways for years. Uh, and, and he finally, finally got free of it. He got delivered from it. And, and, and I don't fully understand how, how addiction works when it comes to, to drugs and, and alcohol in this way. But, but, but he told me, he said, at this point in his life, anyway, he said, Greg, I'm never, once you're in this life, he said, I can drive down the street and I can see drug deals happen all the time. Far away town, never been there before, but I can see, you can see it happen. When, when you're in the life, you can recognize the life. He said, and every time I saw that, there was this temptation. You know, I could wheel in there, and I could get a score, and no one would know. He said, the temptation was too great for me. He said, so the only way I found out, the only way I knew I could resist temptation, right? Then the Bible said, resist temptation, the enemy will what? Flee. Some of us, what accountability is, is you are putting some mechanisms in your life that is going to help me resist temptation. Until the devil flees. So my friend, he said, he told me something, I just know that if I have cash in my pocket, I'm going to fail. It's too easy. It's too prevalent. If there's cash in my pocket, I'm going to stop. I'm going to fail. So my solution is right now, and my buddy's been clean for over 10 years. I don't know that he still operates this way today, but, but 10 years ago, he knew that he had cash in his pocket, he would fail. So he just refused to carry cash. And the first several months that he was clean, he just refused to carry cash. He knew every time he swiped his debit card, his wife would see the, his wife would see the account. So he knew that it's built-in accountability. Every dollar I spend, she's going to see it. So he just refused to keep cash until one day, his, I believe it was his birthday rolled around, and everyone that he worked for, he worked 30 miles from our city, everyone he worked with knew that he had conquered his addiction, he had freedom in his life, and they wanted to celebrate with him. So guess how they celebrated? They took up a collection of cash, and they put it in his hand. And he said, Greg, I looked down, and for the first time in months, I had cash. And he said, just like a road map in my mind, immediately I knew every place I could stop and get a hit on my way home. I said, well, what did you do? He said, I immediately called my wife and said, listen, they have given me, I think it was like $468 in cash. It's in my hand right now. When I get home, if I have anything less than $468, you will know I have failed. Now, some of you would think, that sounds extreme. No, that sounds like accountability. 
Pastor, that sounds like living in chains. No, that's what it's like to live in freedom. Right? That's what it's like to say, I am determined that I am going to renounce this part of my life and I'm not going to go back. Accountability provided, it provides the needed information before it's required. Me think, well, that's extreme, that's trusting, that's no way to live. I, I'm just telling you, that's the best way to live. Megan and I, we have some, and I'm not trying to put the spotlight on us. If you have ways to help us, we text us, we would take it. But I, I'll just tell you a few ways when it comes to home improvement and accountability in our life. There's several things that we have in place that, that help, helps us, maybe it'll help somebody in the room. Number one, I'll tell you this, Megan has every password to everything I have. Social media, Facebook, Instagram, email, whatever. She has it. She has the password to my phone. She can pick it up at any moment and, and check anything she wants to at any time, and she does. <laughs> and I do her. Pastor, don't y'all trust each other? We've been married like 22 years. Sure, I trust her. I also trust that the devil is a roaring lion looking for someone who he may devour. And if he may devour one person, that means he may not devour someone else. And I want to be in the may not devour part when it comes to my family. She has the ability to track my location on my cell phone. Any moment, which is kind of scary. One day she called me. I was playing golf. And she called me. She said, are you just now on hole number six? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of <laughs> slow. The problem, the problem is not when she checks on me or when I check on her. The problem is when I resent her checking on me. Are checking on her because first Peter says we got to be alert and we got to be sober-minded your enemy the devil prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour I got a buddy of mine that has a computer screen in his kitchen that mimics every email and every text he gets all day long so his wife and kids get to see every text and email he gets all day long. What is that? It's deciding I'm going to close every door possible to the enemy. Maybe you've got some, maybe you've got some, you know, pastor, here's some things we've done in our life to help guard against temptation. I would love for you to text them to me. I, I may very well put them to use because I, God has done so much and too much for me to throw up my hands. And let me tell you something about each one of you. You're sitting in church on a Sunday morning, time change Sunday. That's a hard day to come to church, right? The enemy has a target on you. And the question is not, are you going to fail sometimes? You're going to fail question is, are you going to get back up seven times? Are you going to, are you going to renounce that what I have failed before 
It's not going to be that easy for me to fail again. Number one, accountability. Number two, we've got to sever, which means to cut off lingering attachments. Genesis chapter 2 says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two united become one. You know, part of a marriage is when you, when you, get, when you get married, Genesis says, For this reason will a man leave. Everybody said this word with me. Leave. When you get married, you're supposed to leave, and you're supposed to cleave to your spouse. And if you get those two things mixed up, it can be very confusing. And I've, I've discovered that when you get married, this leaving and cleaving isn't a one-time thing. Your entire life, you are leaving your old relationships, you're severing those old relationships, you're redefining those old relationships, and you are cleaving to your family. You're cleaving to your wife. You're cleaving to the Lord. That happens spiritually when we get saved. The moment we choose to follow God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, what agreement exists between the temple of God and the temple of idols? For we are the temple of the living God. He says, I'm going to dwell with them and walk among them and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. 1 Peter chapter 4 says that you've spent Enough time in the past carrying out the same desires as the Gentiles, leaving in debauchery, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. Likewise, what's Paul saying? Spiritually, you've got to continually be leaving the things of your past and cleaving to the things of God. The spiritual word for that is called sanctification. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. But that takes effort on my part. It takes effort on your part. We have to be willing to redefine relationships. I get nervous. Is that okay if I tell you I get nervous sometimes? I get nervous when someone tells me, you know, this is my very best friend. And the person they describe as their best friend is someone other than their spouse. I get nervous. I especially get nervous that that best friend of theirs is of the opposite sex. Let me tell you something. If your best friend is of the opposite sex and you're married to someone else, there is some severing of attachments that need to come place. I really believe that if your best friend is of the same sex as you, and they're not, that's not who you're married to. Biblically speaking, it is time to sever or redefine that relationship. The two became one. See, the social circles in our life, I love how you're shouting this morning. The social circles, you're about shouting about as loud as I expected you to, honestly. Social circles are either lifelines that steady me or they're anchors that sink me. Well, Pastor, don't you know that Jesus hung out with sinners and was friends of sinners? Yep. But go back home and look and see how much time did he spend with sinners and how much time did he spend with people who believed like he believed, going the direction he was going, 
and committed to the mission he was committed to. The life-giving relationship in his life were 12, and really out of that 12, it was three. And if you really want to narrow it down, there was one who was his closest ally, and they were believers. So we have to be willing to sever attachment. Well, Pastor, you know, I, I, I know I got a lot of people I hang out with that aren't Christ followers, and I know, you know, the, the people I date with aren't Christ followers, and I know I got these attachments, but they're really not, they're really not weighing me down. They're really not stopping me. Have you ever seen a dog that lived on a chain? What happens when a dog lives on a chain? There becomes a visible boundary that he cannot cross. And he may seem like the freest dog in the world until he tries to go somewhere new. That's how relationships and attachments are to us. They, they, don't, they don't seem binding, and they don't seem like they're holding us back until we get ready to move forward and become aware of them. That's why Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us, and the sin, listen to this phrase, the sin that so, what's that word? How hard is it for us to have attachments to our life, people in our life that throw us off course. Is it hard or easy? Easy. The sin that so easily besets us. It's not that any of us wake up one morning and think, you know what, today, November the 6th, two days before election day, two days before pastor's birthday, by the way, November the 6th, that sounds like a great day to walk away from God. Let's, let's, let's all do it on the 6th of November. Oh, sounds like a great, let's do it. Nobody wakes up like that. We just wake up. And we go through our life, and we let our guard down, and sin easily besets us. We've got to throw it off. That's why Romans chapter 13 says, Lay aside the deeds of darkness. Ephesians chapter 4 says, To put off your old way of living. Home improvement occurs every time we consecrate ourselves to God. And distance ourselves from other forces that sabotage our commitment to Him. Well, as a youth pastor, and I used to say all the time, people in our lives are like buttons on the elevator. They either take us up or they take us down. And the same is true for us today. Number three, Megan, if you want to come. The third way we keep our home improving is we have to commit to fighting spiritual apathy to confronting spiritual apathy in Joshua chapter 24 scripture Joshua has been newly appointed to be the leader of God's people it's time to go into the promised land they've got to decide are we going to go forward we're going to go backwards we're going to stay the same are we going to trust God are we going to walk away from God are we going to believe him enough to follow him are we going to commit to his way of doing things or are we going to just keep doing our own thing Joshua says, okay, you make the decision. You do what you want to do. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. One of the reasons we have to confront spiritual apathy is because when I was a kid, there's a store in our town, and about this time of year, they had a whole row of these things. 
And let me just introduce you to nine-year-old Greg. Nine-year-old Greg would make a beeline to that row, and every, all 120 of them. <laughs> then I'd go to the next one. And I'd make my way down, and, and I'd get about like number 30, and my mom would walk up. She'd say, Greg, those things are expensive. Put your hand in your pocket and walk away. That was nine-year-old Greg. I'm not sure I've changed that much. <laughs> but snow globes, which some of you are going to be getting these out decorating, snow globes are sort of a picture of our spiritual life sometimes. God does something in our life. God's Spirit is just active. It's just all over the place for Prayer is easy. Praise is easy. His presence with us is easy. It's just, it just, it's just like no effort. Look, no effort. It's just, isn't that beautiful? Sometimes we think the Christian life should be like a, it should just be, whoa. Like, <laughs> but let me tell you the truth about your spirit life, about your family life. you got to shake that dude up every once in a while. Or all this stuff that looks glorious and easy is going to become absent and hard. If I just sit this down for a few minutes, this one's working pretty fast. All this stuff just falls to the ground. What happens to our marriages and our families, our relationship with our parents, spouses, whatever, is that we, we just keep a secret or two. We really don't hold each other accountable or offer accountability. It would be a better phrase. We don't offer accountability to one another. And our spirit, our spirit life, our relationships just become less and less of, of that. Some of you might be getting depressed right now as I tell you that part of home development, spiritual development, home improvement takes me shaking things up, working a little bit, applying a little bit of effort continually. Like, let me just, let me swipe a card. Let me go to a workshop. Let me zap me so it can be better. But it's more like the snow globe. If you want to keep it going, you've got to kind of shake things up every once in a while. If you think about Jesus, you may wonder, what, what did Jesus do? Jesus served wholeheartedly. Jesus prayed consistently. Jesus surrounded himself with people who would respond to what the Father was saying to him to respond to. Maybe you wonder, Pastor, how do I stir up my life? We stir ourselves when we obey God, when we don't want to. Can I tell you, if you're going to obey God, if you're going to obey the Word of God, you're going to have to do so in moments you don't want to. 1 Peter 5.8 talks about 
Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will what? Do you know what submitting means? Doing what God wants to do, not what you want to do. If you want to do it, it's not submitting. I've heard people say, oh, my husband and my wife, you know, we just submit to each other. They've been married for like six weeks. (laughs) You're not submitting to each other. You haven't disagreed yet. Submission doesn't occur until I disagree. Somebody needs to write that down in your Bible right now. <laughs> I've heard people say, oh, I submit to my spiritual authority. Yeah, right up to the point you disagree with them. Then you go and you find you a different church. That's just for other people. That's not for you. <laughs> just for other people, the ones that aren't here today. Don't get your... But, but we stir ourselves by obeying the Word of God we don't want to. We stir ourselves through prayer, through investing in the Word, through serving. We stir ourselves by investing. And here, Here's a big way to, to stir yourself. Decide that I'm going to do for someone else what someone did for me. I'm going to love someone who is hard to love. Because once upon a time, I was that stupid kid that went through the treasure chest shaking every snow globe, and someone loved me anyway. Treasure chest was the name of the store, by the way. We stir ourselves when we decide, hey, listen, I'm going to improve. With, you have to do it by myself. Joshua said, hey, it don't matter if you go with us. It doesn't matter what it costs us. That's for me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. And this is so, uh, this is so I'm, just, I'm just telling my own trash this morning. This is so hard for me personally because I like to strategize for comfort. And God wants to strategize our life for growth. And growth and comfort don't always come together. They don't always go together. Listen to Romans 12. Don't be slothful in zeal. Instead, be fervent in the Spirit. In other words, keeping my spiritual self stirred up isn't about me going to some other place some other time and letting someone pray for me nothing wrong with that i'll be happy to pray for you it's not about me getting zapped by the spirit of god nothing wrong with that he'll be happy to zap you from time to time but here's the thing we've got to keep our fervency in the lord paul told timothy stir up the gift that's inside of you stir it up shake it up keep it active So here's how we're going to pray. Bow your heads with me real quick. Accountability. Offer it. Sever attachments. If there's people in your life, habits in your life, places in your life that you know are marginalizing your attempt of being the husband, the wife, the son, the daughter, the friend that God's called you to do, be willing to sever them redefine them, put them the right priority. And then third, confront any spiritual apathy in your life. Now, this is going to be different. But right now, if the Holy Spirit's convicting you that you need to offer accountability to someone, if there is a something in your heart that you've been hiding from a family member, 
a spouse, child, whatever, I don't want you to lean over and tell them that thing you've been hiding right now. But if they're sitting next to you, everybody's eyes closed, private moment. They're sitting next to you, your husband or your wife, sitting next to you. You say, there's some secrets that, that, listen, every secret we keep, it's like a small crack, crack in a big dam. It may not seem significant, but every day we let it live, the crack is getting bigger, the water's flowing more, and it's just a matter of time to what we thought was a small deal becomes a big deal. If you, if you are being dishonest, that's the only word for it, with your spouse, I would challenge you to lean across to them right now, turn to them right now, and say, before the sun goes down, we need to talk. I'm going to close my eyes for the next 20 seconds so that can take place. The person isn't here today. Get your phone out and text them right now. Pastor, this is tough stuff. It seems overboard. Well, I'm believing for an overboard blessing, an overboard restoration in our, in our lives, in our families, in our church. And it only comes as we go overboard in obedience to Christ. Do it right now. I'm about to open my eyes in a few seconds, so you need to get your cell phone put away if you don't want me to see it. Number two, sever attachments. Here's the second question. Is there a relationship with someone outside your family who is jeopardizing your relationship with those in your family? I'm not even talking about inappropriate relationships. I'm just talking about a damaging relationship. If you say, you know, I'm, act, I'm, I'm tempted to act, think, and scheme in ways that are not pleasing to Christ or my family when, I, when I'm in their presence, then as much as able, I need to marginalize my time with that person. Because what God is doing in me is too great. What God is doing in you is too great to, be, to sabotage ourselves. And number three, Spiritual apathy. Confront it right now. Decide that I'm going to seek the Lord above all else because I want my spiritual life to always be improving, not decaying. I want my family life to always be improving, not decaying. So we're going to confront spiritual apathy right now. So I want to ask all of you across this room, would you join me by standing? And this is something we can do together as a family right now. We can do it as a single person right now. You can do it as a, as a, as a young person, a student right now. That is, you can confront any and all spiritual apathy in your life right now. And so we're going to take another 60 seconds or so, and we're going to confront spiritual apathy. Pastor, how do I do that? The word says it like this, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Instead of, do you know, I didn't say this, but let me say it to you. Do you know what spiritual apathy sounds like? It can be summed up in two words. Here's the two words. This is the definition of spiritual apathy. I'm good. Come to church? Oh, I'm good. Want to go to church? Oh, I'm good. Time for prayer? I'm good. 
I mean, what's wrong with saying, I'm good? Sounds good. But I'm good means that I'm parked. I'm stationary. And our improvement turns into decay because we're just saying, oh, I'm good. I'm good. That's, that's, that's the definition of spiritual apathy. Spiritual growth and combating that sounds more like this. Father, I need you. God, I need you. My family needs me to recognize my need for you. So, Father, here I am. I'm seeking you. Come on, would you just take the next 60 seconds and seek the Lord? Would you confront the spiritual apathy that may be trying to set up shop in your life? God, Father, forgive us. God, forgive me when I've said, Lord, Lord, I'm good. Lord, I can make it. God, I've got this. Lord, I can handle this myself. Lord, forgive me when I thought, well, I can, I can miss this week or miss this miss this appointment with you. I can miss this time with you. I can stay where I am. I can not engage, not serve, not be accountable. I can, I can just do my thing instead of your thing. Lord, forgive me of all that today. Father, I just seek you. I seek you, Lord. I seek your face. I seek you first. Father, I seek your will for my life. I seek your will for my family. God, I pray that you will mold me shape me, break me if necessary so that I will be the father I've been called to be to my kids. I'll be the pastor. I've been called to be to this church. I'll be the leader. I've been called to be to those around me. I'll be the example you called us to be to our community, that I'll be the light in the dark place, that we will be the city set up on a hill. Lord, none of that happens in my own doing. It only happens when I seek first you and your priorities and your kingdom. And then, Lord, when I do that, then, God, you begin to align everything else. God, Forgive us today of ever just settling for where we are and continue to take us deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in you. And we'll give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I know that uh, some of this has been tough this morning. I got a friend of mine who used to confront people pretty sternly on a regular basis, and he would always start his conversation like this. Would you please decide right now, am I here to help you or hurt you? I hope today that through all this, you've heard my heart, because I'm here to help you. And God's here to help you, most importantly, never to hurt you. Father, I pray with the people today, Lord, you give us words of life, not because you want bad for us, not because you want to keep us from certain things, but because you want to deliver to us life and life abundant. So I pray that abundant life be lavished upon the people of God today. I pray that our homes will be places of continual improvement. That is a place where your spirit flows and Jesus reigns. And that all of our homes is producing the spirit that is greater than us. It's the spirit of Jesus. So God bless the people today, Lord. Bless them. And keep them, let your face shine upon them. Give them peace and joy both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you give the Lord a hand clap for his word today? God bless you. Hey, if you're a first-time guest, I'd love to greet you and meet you. I'll be on the front porch in about 60 seconds. Have a wonderful day. Hello, this is Greg Sanders, pastor of the Assembly here in Cabot. I want to say thanks for listening today. If you're ever in the Cabot area, we'd love to have you join us for a service. For service times, check out our webpage at the Assembly Cabot. 
www.thebigbigbook.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a great day and God bless.